Well, good morning. My name is Phil, and I serve as the executive pastor here at Terra. And in the summer, I tend to preach a little more frequently than I do the rest of the year. Uh, next Sunday, our lead pastor, Ed, will be teaching in our Proverbs series, looking at um, what the book of Proverbs has to say about emotions. And today, I'll be teaching on what it has to say for families. And that includes uh, husbands and wives, future husbands and wives, young children, adult children, siblings, essentially everyone in this room. So uh, if you're the the 20-year-old single guy, please don't think uh, this sermon is not for me. You're in here, I promise. Uh, Stick with us. So uh, go ahead and open up your uh, Bible to the uh, book of Proverbs. And if you don't have a Bible with you, just raise your hand. Someone will bring one to you. Keep it up long enough for them to see you down front there. Due to the nature of this series where we're just in a lot of different passages of Proverbs, you may find it difficult to keep up with the flipping of the pages, so we we will have all the verses on the screen, and and there's no shame in following along that way as well. Uh, As we continue in this series, I want you to remember that we are studying a book of wisdom. Uh, Wisdom is different than than a set of rules. Uh, Wisdom feels more like principles for living. So, for example, if you're If you're setting out on a journey from one place to another and someone has been on that journey before you uh, and they offer you some wisdom, you can certainly choose to ignore all of it or part of it and you may still get from point A to point B, but that journey might take longer. It might be harder. You might face greater pain and hardship. You might end up spending more money than you planned on. You might not have as much fun and in worst case scenario, something terrible could happen and and you could lose your life. Why? Because you chose to ignore the wisdom of those that have gone before you. You decided that you would rather do what was right in your own eyes. And so as we come to the issue of family in the book of Proverbs, uh, the Bible in general has much to say about family, but Proverbs specifically has some very pointed wisdom that we would do well to listen to. Uh, Again, you can choose to ignore it. You can choose to to muddle through life, um, constantly coming up with your own solutions perpetually reinventing the wheel when it comes to being a husband or a wife or a parent or a son or daughter. Proverbs has a word for that person. It calls that person a fool. The person who ignores the wisdom that has been put before them is, is a fool, is what Proverbs says. And if we are honest with ourselves, we all have areas of foolishness in our lives. We're all, hopefully, if we're Christ followers, we are on a journey towards becoming more wise in the ways of scripture and in the ways of our God and creator. But, but there's going to be areas, probably until the day we die, where we still lack wisdom, where we're still a little bit foolish. None of us have arrived when it comes to wisdom. So let's stay open to learning and embracing new areas of wisdom as we study the book of Proverbs in general and specifically today as we come to matters of family. Let's open in prayer and then we'll get into this. Father God, we thank you for your word. Um, God, we thank you that you've made it uh, clear to us, especially in the book of Proverbs. Uh, Thank you that you've given us uh, wisdom to live by that we can apply to our lives. It feels like almost immediately when we read the book of Proverbs, there's so many wonderful truths in there that we can put into practice right away, and we thank you for that. God, I pray that as we look at this issue of family in the book of Proverbs today, that you would open our hearts, uh, allow us to be ready to learn and and be challenged by your truth. We pray that we would do these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. 
You know, the family system has the potential to be the most complex set of relationships that you will have. When it's good, it can mean deep loyalty that cuts across all other lines. The family card will trump every other card in the deck. The family bond can convince a mother uh, that her obviously struggling child is, is actually just a genius waiting to be discovered. Just, just someone just needs to see it. No one else can see it like the mother does, right? It can cause a father to, to sell everything to bring home the wayward child. Sisters will be committed to each other in a way that onlookers just can't even wrap their brain around. A guy will risk his own safety in order to stand next to his brother in defense. That's when it's good, right? But when it's bad, where the added ingredient of family seems to make everything ten times worse. Proverbs talks about this in chapter 18, verse 9, uh, excuse me, verse 19, when it says, A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. You know, if, if a friend offends you, hurts you, betrays you, it's, it's one thing. But, but when a brother or a sister or a parent does the same, that cuts into our sense of safety, our sense of duty, the very place that we draw strength from. It hurts in a different way because we want to be able to trust our family. Proverbs paints this picture of, a, of an old fortified city, high walls like something out of a medieval castle. The walls are up, right? That's kind of what the verse is saying. The walls are up. It's like there's this determination to, to not relent, to not trust again that brother or sister or parent who took advantage of the family connection to betray and hurt. I will never trust again, someone might say, with, with clenched teeth. How many times have you heard someone refer to a family member, maybe a parent, that they haven't talked to? in five or 10 or 20 years. And they're always painfully aware of just how long it's been. That hurt remains right there under the surface. Still, they're not giving in, not willing to forgive. The walls are up, more unyielding than a strong city. The wounds of a family member are often the deepest of all. Now, the contrast to this picture of being offended by a brother is the truth that it, it doesn't have to be that way. Proverbs 17, 17 says that a brother is born for adversity, meaning that in the midst of a fight, you want a faithful brother in your corner. People will do crazy things in the name of family. And that's right. It's good. It's the way it should be. Your family should be the people who, who stick by you in the midst of adversity. They should be the people that you can count on. Have you ever noticed that the highest praise for a friendship is the comparison to family? Proverbs 18.24 says that a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That idea is, is kind of meant to shock you. Like, really closer than a brother? That's, that's really close. See, so, so you don't let your kids call all of your friends uncle and aunt, do you? Only the ones that are the closest. If you say to somebody, he's like a father to me, that means something. That really means a lot. You don't see it. You don't say that lightly. Even if your earthly father caused you incredible pain. So even though many here might say, 
you know, the reality is that I'm, I'm much closer with my friends than I am with my family. Even though that might be true, we still resort to family terminology when we want to express just how close those relationships are. She's like a mother to me. I love him like a brother. She's, he's the man uh, the, that I always wish I had as a dad, whatever it might be. Those statements carry weight. We know instinctively what those relationships should be like, even if our sinful world and perhaps our sinful hearts have caused those relationships to be broken and, and marked by, by the fall. We all want brothers and sisters who stand with us in the midst of adversity. Some of you know acutely the pain of a family system that did not measure up. And as a result, uh, marriage is often seen as a chance to, to start over, to kind of hit the, hit the redo button. It's a chance to change the patterns that you grew up in. It's a chance to not let the sins of the father or mother extend to the third or fourth generation. And Proverbs has a lot to say on marriage. It's interesting, actually, the big finish to the book of Proverbs is a poem about a great wife. In fact, this, this woman that Proverbs 31 uh, talks about seems almost superhuman. Uh, listen to Proverbs 31, 10, and 11. It says, An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. That word excellent literally means strong or, or a woman of strength. Uh, it's funny, there was, a, uh, there was an early Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that actually translated this phrase, a manly woman. So a manly woman, who can find? Um, probably has a little different meaning today, but, uh, but it's, it's there. So the point is she can handle a lot, right? She's not dainty. She's not dainty. Proverbs 31 goes on to talk about her work ethic and her ability to, to make money, her, her kindness to those in the community that are less fortunate, her ability to plan for the future, the way that she builds her husband's reputation, the fact that she operates out of wisdom. This is like the super mom, the super wife. She's the CEO. She's a, a real estate developer. She's out buying fields and considering what they're worth. She makes her own clothes. She grows her own food. She serves at the soup kitchen every day. And she basically never sleeps. It says she rises early. Her lamp never sleeps. She does not eat the bread of idleness. The poor woman seems to never have a moment free. And that can be intimidating. Here's what we need to remember about Proverbs 31 and this infamous Proverbs 31 passage and the Proverbs 31 woman. Uh, it was written for men. This passage was actually written for men. That's not to say that a woman can't learn from it and be inspired by it. That should, be, uh, that should also happen. But the point is to say to the guy, hey, these are some qualities that you should look for in a woman. Strong character. A great work ethic. Commitment to building the household. Commitment to her husband. A woman who pursues the wisdom of God. Who's more concerned about being clothed in, in strength and dignity than in in whatever the latest fashions are or, or the right look. You want a woman that you can count on, like the passage says, the heart of her husband trusts in her. See, Proverbs has a very high view of women. You do not get the picture of 
the 1950s wife vacuuming in the pretty dress. This is not the image you get as you read Proverbs 31. This is a strong, godly, intelligent woman who cares about her family and cares about her community. In fact, wisdom is personified in the book of Proverbs as a woman. I can tell you that as a person who is married to a strong, godly, intelligent woman of character who cares about her family and her church community, I can tell you that I reap the benefits of that on a daily basis. The passage says that the husband will will have no lack of gain. And I agree, my, my life is easier because of who my wife is. I don't mean easier like I get to sit on the couch and watch TV all day kind of easier. I mean that her wisdom impacts our household. That we are a team that works together for our family and for our church. And the trust that exists between us frees us up to accomplish more for God's glory. Proverbs says that this kind of woman is rare. And you know, some ladies might be here thinking, you know, I, I'm, just not, I'm just not a Proverbs 31 kind of woman for my husband or or I don't know if I can ever be that for my future husband one day when I get married. I feel like you're missing it. First, let me just remind you, these are principles, not rules, right? So, ladies, you don't have to make your own clothing to be considered excellent. Just make that real clear. You're okay if you can't sew a stitch. That's fine. You don't have to become a real estate developer to be considered an excellent woman. That's not the point here. This is not about a, a list of things, skills that you have to build before you can be considered marriable, right? Marriageable, marriageable. This is about a set of characteristics to develop over a lifetime. It, it's not something you're going to get to right away. I don't get the impression that Proverbs 31 is written about, you know, a, a newlywed woman. I think this is a poem about a, a woman that, that he spent a lifetime with that these characteristics have developed over a long period of time, and he's looking and saying, boy, what an incredible, what an incredible woman I've been married to. It's also worth pointing out that the text says that she had maidens. Um, the woman had staff, right? So I'm sure that many of you might wish that you had staff at home. That would be nice. I know my wife would probably appreciate that. But you might still think, you know, Pastor Phil, look, I... I just don't know if I can measure up. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that wise yet. I, I don't pursue my faith the way that I ought to. I don't care about co- my community the way that this woman seems to. I let my husband down all the time. I want to make this very clear. God believes in your marriage. He's in favor of your marriage succeeding and growing stronger so that you as a couple have greater opportunities to bring glory to God by serving him and building his kingdom and pointing people to Christ. You are a gift in that sense. And as you pursue wisdom and grow in grace and pray for the Holy Spirit to align your heart with the heart of Christ more and more each day, character growth is sure to follow. Maybe not right away. Certainly it'll be hard work. But it's not unreachable for the woman who submits to the Spirit of God in her life. You won't get there on your own, that's for sure. But in God's strength, you can certainly continue on that path towards becoming a woman who is, as the passage says, clothed in strength 
and dignity. But let me talk to the guys here for a minute because this actually has some pretty important words for us as well. The word husband can be a noun, but it can also be used as a verb. Husbandry just means cultivation. Uh, If your wife is not where you wish she was, compared to Proverbs 31, it might be your fault in part. In, In part. You may not be setting her up for success. You may not be giving her the tools to become what God intended her to become. Listen to verse 28. It says, her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and and he praises her. Husbands, when was the last time you praised your wife? Encouraged her? And I don't just mean a quick, like, hey, babe, you look pretty today. Though that's important. I mean deep, well-thought-through, intentional praise for aspects of her character, her parenting skills, the way she pursues God, her skill in her job, the way that she cares for others. Celebrate your wife. Celebrate your wife. Listen to the praise we see right here in Proverbs 31, uh, verses 29 and 30. It says, Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Encourage your wife in her faith. If you've got kids that seem to eat up her time, which is all kids, by the way, um, free her up to go to the women's retreat. Take a couple days off of work if that's what it requires. Free her up on a Saturday morning when the kids are driving her crazy and say, just, just get out of here. Go to Starbucks, take your Bible, and just have some time, you and God. Encourage her faith in that way. Pray for her constantly. Praise her. Encourage her. Intentionally. Thoughtfully. And regularly. I am so grateful that I uh, was raised in a home where I saw this modeled all the time. I grew up hearing my dad praise my mom for all sorts of things. Simple things like a a great dinner that she might have made. Maybe things like... The way, how hard she worked in, in her job. She was a nurse at a, a drug rehab center, and it was, it was hard work, but it, it put me and my brothers through college. She praised her, my dad praised her all the time for her faith, and always continues to talk about how strong a, a woman in, in faith that she is. If we as kids so much as uttered a disrespectful word to her, I mean, he would shut that down so fast, you didn't know what happened. He cultivated, he husbanded an environment that encouraged my mom to be a strong, godly woman of character. And she responded to that environment and grew in it. And as a result, we as as kids did exactly what Proverbs 31, 28 talks about. We rose up and we called her blessed, in part because my dad modeled that for us. Guys, if if you're dropping the ball in this area of your household, rather than beat yourself up about it and and think, well, I've got to do so much or it's not worth it, listen, just start small and start today. Determine today that you're going to go after this. Start praising her. Start celebrating her character. Start creating an environment where she is freed up 
to pursue God in the midst of, of work life and home life and parenting and just general busyness. Help your wife become a woman who is praised for her fear of the Lord. Now let's turn to our role as children. Proverbs 15.20 tells us that a wise son makes a glad father, but a, a foolish man despises his mother. And Proverbs 20.20 tells us that if one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. And chapter 23.25 says that we are to let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. So whether you had great parents who, who loved you, and carefully raised you to follow God or the exact opposite of that kind of household. There is a responsibility to, as, as Exodus talks about, to honor your father and mother, even as adults. The first verse talked about despising your mother and, and how foolish that is. Now, you may not despise your parents, but do you ever treat them as people who perhaps don't have much to offer anymore, which is kind of another way of saying that they're, they're worthless. Have you ever talked down to them because they don't understand the world that you're in? Maybe they're significantly older than you and you just feel like they're coming from a whole other mindset and you might find yourself speaking down to them. That's not honoring our parents. That's not uh, letting them be glad in, in us. Our parents don't have to earn our respect. God says we're commanded to give it to them. Now, that doesn't mean that they walk all over you or control you, even as adults. But it does mean that we set an example to those around us for how we, even as adults, treat our parents. Even if they were not great examples of parenting. In fact, I've seen on more than one occasion where uh, uh, the the children of non-believing parents have become believing parents adults, and then through their witness in the way that they treated their non-believing and perhaps parents who didn't do a very good job, the way that they treated them in return was such a great example of what the gospel can do in a person's life that those parents were introduced to Christ through their children. What a beautiful picture of the gospel honoring the way that you treat your parents. Now let's turn to parents raising children. What does Proverbs have to say to us, parents, future parents? Proverbs 22.6 is kind of the wide statement. It just says, train up a child in the way that he should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Parenting is is hard work. It's hard work. It just feels like you have to be on all the time. And sometimes you just need a nap. Every conversation feels like a teaching moment and you feel like you're going to mess it up if you don't say the right thing at the right time. And the reality is that our, the time with our kids is so short. I look at my nine-year-old who is as tall as most 11 or 12-year-olds and, and wears the same shoe size as my wife and I just think, who are you? Where did you come from? I used to carry you on my shoulders and now you'd break my back if I put you on my shoulders. Time is so short, it goes by so fast. And if we're not careful, we can, we can get so focused on, on soccer club and swim lessons and music classes and karate and dance and on and on it goes that we can suddenly realize that 
through our own actions and priorities, we have proven that we care more about our kids being successful than we do about them being spiritual. This image of of training up a child in the way that he should go, it, it has an interesting origin. It comes from an ancient Near East way of teaching babies how to nurse when they're first born so that the mothers can feed them when they don't know that that milk is good for them. They don't know it yet. So you get them started on the right path before they know that it's the right path. You teach your kids to follow Jesus before they understand just how much they need Jesus. You live your faith in such a way that your kids taste how good it is and they want more. That's where that phrase comes from, training up a child in the way that he should go. Now look, is it always, is it always going to work out? Will every child raised in a Christ-honoring home go on to follow Jesus? No. There comes a point where, where the child reaches an age where you've, you've kind of done what you can. You've done what you can and your child has grown up and is going to make their own decisions. But you know what? If you've got that grown child that has chosen their own path and that path doesn't include Christ, don't give up yet. Don't give up yet. I've had the privilege of watching my two oldest brothers return to Christ in their 30s and 40s. If you're enduring the heartache of a wayward child, don't give up. Keep praying for them until the day you die. Make that your goal, your mission. I think one of the hardest things about parenting as a Christ follower is that so much of what we value as parents flies in the face of everything our culture tells us is the right way to do it. Our culture teaches our kids to put themselves first. And the Bible teaches us to put others before ourselves. Our culture teaches our kids that the world revolves around them. And the Bible teaches us that our lives are to revolve around Christ. The Bible teaches us to be Christocentric. Our culture teaches our kids that they are naturally good people. The Bible and quite honestly, all evidence to the contrary, teaches us that we are born with a sin nature that is bent on rebellion against all authority in our lives, whether that authority is human-centered or God-centered. We want to rebel. Likewise, as parents, we face a culture that treats the Bible not as authoritative words of God, but as an interesting but perhaps out-of-touch book that has very little to say for today. The wisdom of Proverbs is not treated as the very words of our creator, but as an optional set of truisms that can be picked over, disregarding anything that offends us. One of the most controversial but biblical concepts of parenting is found here in Proverbs 22, 15. It says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. We could get a little more specific on this in Proverbs 13, 24. It says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Now, this is not the spanking sermon, which is why we're well into this before it's even coming up. But it is a sermon on wisdom from God for families found here in the book of Proverbs. Chapter 22, 15 says that, That folly is bound up in the hearts of our children. And folly could be defined as intentionally disobeying the obvious truth of God. And that discipline in all forms, uh, including the rod of discipline, forms of spanking, have a role 
in driving out that folly. Now notice what it does not say. It does not say that spanking is the only way. Let me make that clear. Um, It's not the only way, right? So it also doesn't say not to spank, right? So if you read, whoever spares the rod hates his son and thinks the Bible does not believe in spanking, um, there's something off in the reading comprehension there, right? Somewhere in between spank always and never spank is the truth of Scripture. Here's the thing. If you have more than one child, you know that what works with one child does not work with the next or the next. My youngest, Simon, all I have to do is speak to him with a stern voice. Simon, stop it. And, and you know, generally he does. Most of the time he does. My oldest required a little more coaxing. You have to find what works best in your family and with each child, but to outright dismiss something that Scripture teaches is akin to saying God was wrong. He he didn't mean this. That isn't what he intended. Listen, this is just a tool in the tool belt of parenting. It doesn't need to be your go-to every time, but it shouldn't be rejected either. And let me also say that as you think about... um, forms of discipline that go a little further, you want to apply the fruit of the Spirit to it. So you don't want to do these things out of anger, certainly. You will just ruin it. I think a key reason why we reject something like the rod as taught in Proverbs is because we think that the culture demands that we reject it. I remember when we were new parents, we had just moved to New York State, and I honestly wasn't sure if there was, you know, laws in New York State that that made spanking illegal. I don't don't know. New York isn't known as a bastion of conservative morals. So I I just was curious. I happened to be working with um, a family that the mom was struggling with some addiction issues, and uh, I was called in as the pastor to meet with a Child Protective Services representative. And so I thought, you know, here's my chance. I'm going to ask her some questions. So in the midst of meeting with this CPS staff member, I took the opportunity to ask her, what does the state have to say about this? What's allowed? What's not? She went on to tell me all about uh, what what they see as okay and what's not okay. And she even gave me suggestions on on what to use to spank my children. Um, She suggested a a paint stick or a, a, a small piece of a belt, something that would cause a a bee sting kind of feel, but not actually do any harm, but would get the child's attention. The whole time I'm thinking, I have a a New York State employee who works for Child Protective Services teaching me how to spank my children. This is a conversation I never thought I would have. But listen, this is not the spanking sermon, but it is in Proverbs, and it has to do with wisdom for families, and it's a big issue in our culture And if you are a parent working through this issue, trying to figure out where you stand on this, uh, this sermon's not going to solve it for you. You probably need to do more study on this. And if I could recommend one source for you to go to outside of God's word, but will really help to shed some light on what God's word teaches on this, I would encourage you to pick up a book called Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp, Shepherding a Child's Heart. And there's a chapter in there specifically on this It's going to talk all about what the rod is, when and how it should be used. Great book to have on your shelf. 
lots of other great chapters in there that will help you as a parent. Every Christian parent should have that book on their shelf. At the end of the day, our big goal as parents is to turn the hearts of our children towards God. Proverbs 14, 26 tells us that in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. There are so many things that we could spend our time teaching our children. But the most important thing of all is to help them understand who they are in relation to God. To teach them what it means to find confidence in submission to our Creator and Heavenly Father. To teach them that even when their own parents let them down, when their brothers and sisters let them down, when their future spouses let them down, that we can find refuge in God. Relationships are tough. Family is is not always pleasant. We can point to all sorts of evils in this world and long for eternity in heaven. We can point to, to wars or insane violence like we saw in Colorado this week. We can point to systemic poverty, a government that seems to be in perpetual gridlock, natural disasters. We can point to so many things that are wrong in this world, but I think that what strikes closest to home is when we see relationships that bear the marks of sin. When we see relationships that, that we know could be better, should be better, but instead are flawed and are in need of renewal, in need of the gospel. And so we find refuge in God, knowing that even though brothers are born for adversity, as Proverbs 17 told us, that sometimes when you need them most, they just won't be there. And even though wives should be the kind of wives that husbands can rise up and call blessed and praise and celebrate and children should be able to do the same, that there are going to be times when there just isn't much positive to say. And even though sons and daughters should bring joy to their parents, sometimes they will bring only pain, no matter how hard you have tried to train them up in the ways of the Lord. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. And this is why we need the kinds of promises that we find at the end of the last book of the New Testament. Like this one in Revelation 21.5. It says, Behold, I am making all things new. In Jesus, the new Adam we have a chance to, to see all the crooked lines straightened out and all the broken relationships mended through the great gospel truth that while we were still in sin, Christ died for us and promised to make us new. I'm going to invite Pastor Scott back up to the stage and we're going to take some time for communion. And this is designed to be a reminder of the forgiveness that Christ followers have experienced through the death and resurrection of Christ. And I would encourage you to think through some of those family relationships that have marked you and perhaps scarred you. And if you have not already done so, to commit to beginning that process of forgiveness. 
You'll have two songs to come forward for communion. Let's celebrate our God. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise that you are making all things new. God, we thank you for the gift of family that even when it's bad, we can continue to pursue you in it and bring honor and glory to you in that. God, I pray that we would recognize the gift of our children and our husbands and wives and praise you for that even as we celebrate them. God, we pray all these things in your name and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.